largely a mystery to us that is revealed over time as we experience Jesus more and the revelation of who He is. And so the confession that we make that Jesus is Lord is a confession that we make from faith. And He is positionally Lord over us from the time that we come to faith in Christ. But we come to know what that means as we live it out and we walk our lives with Him. Let me just illustrate this with a question. How many of you, if you're a follower of Jesus in here by a show of hands, how many of you from this time that you started following Jesus to now, uh, Jesus has had you lay down more things, changed your heart more, changed your perspective more, made you give things up, made you give things away, made you die to yourself far beyond what you could have ever imagined when you said, yes, I will follow you, Lord. Anybody in that boat? Yeah, exactly. It's far beyond what we can imagine when we say, yes, Jesus. We don't totally know what it means to give everything over from the moment of salvation. We have to learn. He, he teaches us as we follow Him. And the process of coming more and more under His Lordship speaks to Jesus' gentleness. And it speaks to Jesus' patience with us. Because as I say, He is Lord from the moment that we put our faith in Him. Everything belongs to Him. Our entire allegiance. But Jesus doesn't come along and start demanding everything all at once because he knows we can't hand everything over. We can't do it. We can give everything up at once. We, we battle our flesh. We battle our sin. We battle the old ways. We have an enemy that tempts us. And so Jesus asserts his lordship in our life more and more and more over time. And what we find as we walk with Him is Jesus' demand of lordship is far more than we could ever have comprehended at salvation. And it continually expands in our life as we work out our salvation all throughout life. And all throughout life, Jesus will continue to go, okay, now that. Oh. Okay. He, when Jesus says He wants to be Lord, He means everything. And as we make space in our hearts for Him, He will become Lord over every area of life. And what we discover is His Lordship is far more complete than we could have imagined. But His Lordship is also far more beautiful, and it is far more satisfying than we could ever have imagined. And it's hard at the same time. It doesn't discount that it's hard. right? We all have those times where Jesus puts his finger on something and you're like, no! No, not that. Let's go over here, Lord, and talk about this. And he's like, no, this. And you're like, okay, here we go. So excited to deal with that. We've all had that experience in following the Lord. You know, there's this great little booklet, and maybe some of you have, have read it before, but it is so helpful in understanding what it means that Jesus is Lord of everything. It's this little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home. 
And it was written by uh, Robert Boyd Munger, and it's, it's literally about 30 pages long. And it's from this sermon that he had originally preached back in 1947. And Munger, in this little booklet, he uses uh, an illustration of a young man's heart, and he uses this illustration of a house as a representation of this young man's heart. So you can sub this young man's heart for your own heart. And he depicts the idea that Jesus enters the house the same way that he enters into the heart of a believer upon salvation. And in this house, there are many rooms. And when Jesus enters the house, he proceeds to go on a tour with the young man through all of the different rooms. And the the tour begins in the study. And the study is the place where the thoughts and the images of the mind are held. And it's described by Munger as this small but important room. In a sense, it's kind of the control room of the entire house. And Munger writes, it says, He entered with me, and he looked around at the books on the bookcase, and the magazines on the table, and the pictures on the walls. And as I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had never felt bad about this room before. But now that he was there with me looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books on the shelves that his eyes were too pure to look at. As for the pictures on the walls, the imaginations and thoughts of my mind, some of those were sinful. Red-faced, I turned to him and I said, Master, I know this room really needs to be cleaned up and made over. Will you help me shape it up and change it to the way that it ought to be? Certainly, he replied. I'm glad to help you. I've come to handle things like this. And Jesus proceeds to help the young man to sort through the books on the shelves and change out the images on the walls to things that are true and good and pure and helpful. And then Jesus then leaves that room and he goes to the next room. He goes to the dining room. And the dining room is the room of appetites and desires and he does the same thing. And then he goes to the whole house, to every single room. He goes to the living room, the place of the young man's time and priorities. He goes to the rec room, the place of fun and fellowship. He goes to the bedroom, the place of marriage and sex. He goes through one by one and cleans up all of the rooms. And then one day, Jesus points out to the young man, he says, there's an odd odor that remains in the house. There's a place that we haven't visited yet. There's this small locked closet up on the second floor of the house. And Munger writes, as soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Indeed, there was a leftover from a, or there was a, a place, a small closet up there on the hall landing. It was just a few feet square. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things I didn't want anybody to know about. Certainly I didn't want Christ to see them. They were dead and they were rotting things left over from the old life. They weren't wicked, but they weren't right to have in a Christian life, yet I loved them. I wanted them so much for myself. 
I was really afraid to admit that they were there. Reluctantly, I went up the stairs with him, and as we mounted, the odor became stronger and stronger, and he pointed to the door, and he said, it's in there, some dead thing. And it made me angry. That's the only way I can put it. I'd given him access to the study, to the dining room, to the living room, to the workroom, to the rec room, the bedroom, the family room, the kitchen, and now he's asking me about a little two-by-four closet? I said to myself, this is too much. I am not giving him the key. Well, when the young man protests, Jesus says to him, I'm not going to stay here with this smell. If you won't give me access to it, I'll go stay on the back porch or I'll find somewhere else to stay. And the man relents and he gives Jesus the key because when you've experienced his presence, you want nothing else. And he says to him, I'll give you the key, but you'll have to open the closet and you'll have to clean it out because I don't have the strength to do that. And Jesus just says, yeah, I know. I know you don't have the strength. Give me the key. Just authorize me to handle the closet and I will. And so Jesus, he took the key and he opened the closet and he removed what was putrid and he cleaned and he cleansed it in a moment's time. And the story ends following <laughs> that young man, he has this realization. He goes, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've been trying to run this house. I've been trying to keep it clean. I'm trying to stay on top of everything, but I can't. It's not working. Every time I clean one room, another room is dirty. And then another, and then another. And he turns to Jesus and says, Lord, what if I just gave you the deed to the house? I'm just going to give you the house. It's yours. I'll live here, but you be Lord. And of course, Jesus gladly accepts. In the very last line of that little booklet, it says, May Christ settle down and be at home as Lord of your heart also. And brothers and sisters, that's what this new series is all about. Called Lord of all, Jesus over every area of life. That we would allow Jesus Christ to settle down and be at home as Lord over our hearts, over everything. That we would give him the key and say, you run the house. Because I can't. I can't do it. I don't have the power. I don't have the energy. We all have areas in our walk with Christ that we haven't given over to him. That we have not laid down. You know, one of the great doctrines of our faith is that Jesus himself, through the Holy Spirit, will come and dwell in our hearts. That's pretty incredible. You know, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, in Revelation, when he's writing these letters to the churches, he says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. You know what's so amazing about those words? 
is that the church in Laodicea, Laodicea, they received by far the harshest rebuke from Jesus out of all of the letters that he sent to the seven churches. He tells the church in Laodicea, you are lukewarm. That is not something that you want to be told as a follower of Jesus. To be lukewarm means to be untouched by Jesus' lordship. It means to profess faith only to remain unchanged and indifferent. There is nothing further than the truth of Christ than to profess faith and remain exactly the same. So Jesus confronts the church saying, you're lukewarm. But Jesus being full of truth and full of grace, he doesn't then condemn them. To the church who had not given Jesus the place of Lord, he graciously says, I stand at the door and I am knocking. The Greek gives this impression that it's just this continued knocking. He wouldn't stop. He was incessant. He just kept knocking and knocking and knocking. And he says, if anyone would hear, not that they couldn't hear, they could hear, but if anyone would hear and respond By opening the door, I'm going to come into him and he will enjoy a meal with me, meaning we will have fellowship with one another. He's saying, you haven't come under my lordship, but I'm still willing to come in. I'm still knocking at that door. Will you let me in? I have not forsaken you. I died for you. I love you. Let me in. And it's a call to a church But ultimately, that is a call to each and every individual in that church. They, each one, has to decide whether they will go and open that door. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples something similar. He says in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Wow. We will make our home with Him. Over the next 16 weeks, my attempt with the Lord's help is going to be to encourage us and to exhort us to make space for Christ to dwell in our hearts more fully than He already does. To equip us to hand the deed of our hearts over to Jesus and say, you run the house. Because I can't do it. And we're going to do this by going through the second half of the letter of Ephesians. Because in the letter of Ephesians, Paul addresses so many different areas in the Christian life that Jesus wants to be Lord over. He talks about our conduct toward other people. He talks about our emotions, our appetites, our approach to sex, our marriages, our parenting, our work. He even relates to how we uh, live knowing there's a spiritual world. And so we're going to look at all of these areas together over the next 16 weeks and hopefully allow Jesus to address each room of our heart. And my prayer for each of us and the grounding scripture of this entire series is what Kyle read for us. Specifically verse 16 and 17 that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner 
being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love. Before we have the Word of God bear weight on different areas of our life, we need to do some foundational work first. And that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. So that our hearts are ready to hear and receive what he says in Ephesians 4-6. to Because when you read Ephesians, Paul, Paul doesn't begin with demands of the Christian life. He doesn't jump right in there and go, this is how you are to live. Paul begins in Ephesians 1 to 3, explaining some beautiful things about the faith, and then he says, this is how you're to live. And what Paul teaches in Ephesians 1 to 3 makes the kind of lifestyle with Jesus as Lord that he teaches in Ephesians 4 to 6 essential. Because of these things, living this way is essential. And this is portrayed in the transition that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 verse 1. And we looked at this briefly in our series, Gifted for Love. Before talking about the lifestyle of a Christian, Paul says, I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying, because of these things that I talked about earlier, that I talked about already, it is essential, it only makes sense to walk this way that I'm about to describe to you. And we looked at these verses in our last series a little bit, and I pointed out that, that Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians teaching about doctrine. And Paul understands doctrine informs conduct. It's not just something that's in our minds. Doctrine informs our conduct. Proper conduct becomes essential based on our understanding of the doctrines of the faith. And so in this series, we're not going to go through chapters 1 to 3. But what I want to do this morning is just I want to give a very quick summary of the instruction that Paul gives in those chapters. So that we understand how his instruction informs what we're going to unpack in chapters 4 to 6. So ultimately, the first half of Ephesians is Paul teaching how all of history finds its climax in Jesus. As, as after he greets the church, Paul praises God for what he has done in Jesus, even before the foundation of the world. Paul says that even before the foundation of the world, God has chosen a family to be adopted as sons and daughters through Christ. There is this covenant People living under a promise. And that promise began all the way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. When God promised a people would be blessed through his family. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that was given in Genesis chapter 12. And now anyone is welcomed into God's family through Jesus Christ. And so after that, Paul then makes this massive statement about God's ultimate plan for his creation. You may remember we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. But Paul says God has a purpose for all things. And he is moving toward the fulfillment of his plan. And that plan is centered around Jesus Christ. And it is so important as followers of Jesus to grasp 
God has a specific plan. He has a specific purpose for all of creation. Because when we know that, it informs our worldview and it informs how we live. Let me just give you an example from a couple different worldviews. Atheism says everything is an accident. It just happened. Well, that's going to inform your worldview. Because then what, what really matters? Nothing ultimately matters. You can live how you want to live. There's no eternal consequence to it if everything is just an accident. Relativism and hedonism and all these similar worldviews that are so popular today, they say, you know, there may be meaning to life, but you make the meaning. It's up to you. You decide what your meaning is, what your purpose is. You see all these commercials and all these little memes. You do you. I hate that. You do you. No, you don't do you. That's not how life works. And so relativism and hedonism says, hey, you do you. You make your purpose. You you do whatever you think is right. But it's only for the time that we're here. It's this kind of attitude where it's like, hey, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. And then Hinduism, Hinduism believes, yeah, there is an ultimate plan. That ultimate plan is liberation, but liberation from what and liberation to what, nobody knows. It varies according to different schools in Hinduism. It's all over the place. They don't ultimately know. What are you being liberated from and liberated to? Not sure. And so in comes Christianity that says, there is a specific purpose to creation. There is a specific plan. And that plan and that purpose is determined by by God, and it finds its fullness in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7-10. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. There's God's eternal purpose. There's God's eternal plan for all of creation. You know, it's really cool because the word purpose in English, it can actually be translated from the Greek as good pleasure. So it's not only God's purpose, but it is His good pleasure that He has set forth a plan, and He set forth that plan in Jesus Christ, and it is a plan for the fullness of Time And that plan is to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, when it says unite, it means sum up, that all things come together under Christ, that there will be this restoration of all things in Christ as the head, as the ultimate authority. And when Paul says all things, he means all aspects of of creation, because all of creation is under the fall, whether it be humanity and trees and the wind and the waves, all of creation, and all of it groans to be restored and come under Jesus Christ, and it will happen. Now, this does not mean when Paul says all things will be united, this does not mean that all people will be, but in Christ is where mankind, like all of creation, will find restoration and reconciliation. And so when we know that's the ultimate plan, that is what everything in creation is moving towards, how does that inform how we live with Jesus as Lord? 
that should inform how we live. Because if everything is being united to Jesus Christ as the head, all things in heaven and all things on the earth, and we know this is the plan, we should walk accordingly now. Shouldn't we? If everything is moving that direction, and we know that, then what other way is there to live? To live in any other way would be to live in rebellion to God's ultimate plan. And then Paul continues to Ephesians 1, 21-22, and he, he just really hits home this idea of Jesus' authority. He says, God has placed Jesus far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. I mean, wow. Paul is saying Jesus rules over all in all of eternity. He is the ultimate authority. And so again, if Jesus is the ultimate authority, I want to align my life with that. I don't know about you, but I want to come under the ultimate authority and align my life with what He is doing. And again, to not do so is to rebel against the greatest authority ever known or will ever be known from now into eternity. And so Paul, looking ahead to Ephesians 4, says, therefore walk in this way that's a manner worthy. Because Jesus has all authority. And then he turns to Ephesians chapter 2. And he moves to another argument. And he says, right in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What, what incredible verses. So after pointing out Jesus' authority in chapter 1, Paul highlights God's grace and his kindness toward us and the drastic change that we experienced through his love for us. He's saying, listen, here's what Christ did for you. You were dead. Right? It wasn't like, I'm a mistaker. You were dead in your trespasses and He made you alive. You were a child of wrath. But through Jesus, you received mercy. And not only that, you've been raised and you've been seated with Christ. Meaning, like, your name is in heaven. So it's not just that you received mercy, you inherited an abundance with Christ. And God has been abundantly merciful to you. He has shown kindness and she, He has shown grace. And Paul says, in light of God's kindness, live this way. What else makes sense, right? We talked about this last week. When you know what God has done for you, what else makes sense than to live for Jesus? 
Ephesians 2, 12 to 13, he continues, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul would say in Ephesians 4 again, Therefore, walk this way that is worthy because it's in Christ that you went from having no hope to having all hope in Jesus Christ. So walk this way with Him as Lord. And then Ephesians 2, 16 to 19, that He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says, you've been reconciled. You now have peace with God. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You are members of His household. So walk in a manner worthy of that to which you've been called. I think you see the point that Paul is getting at. This is what he does in Ephesians 1-3. to He's just like, look, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is your reality now. So walk with Him as Lord over all of life. And so that's what we are going to move towards in this series. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth. So next week, we're just like scratching the surface this week. Next week, we are going to uh, pour over Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3. We're going to look at what that means. And the week after that, we're going to talk about the process of sanctification becoming more and more under Christ's lordship. And then we'll start to look at these areas that we all need to consider. All with the intention of what Munger ends his book with. May Christ settle down and be at home as Lord of your heart also. Father, thank you so much for the encouragement that is found in those first three chapters of Ephesians. Those beautiful words that Paul writes about what you have done for us. What an amazing thing to stare into and know that Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That you have saved us and you have given us a hope that you have given us new life, that you have taken us from death to life, and that life is only found in Jesus Christ. Father, if we are your people, your followers, then we have declared Jesus is Lord. But we recognize that there is a process that happens there, that our lives come to reflect that confession that we make at salvation more and more and more as we walk with you. And so, Father, I pray for every heart in here. 
I pray that each heart would be hungry to give more and more of themselves over to you, that we would allow you to have every room of that house, that we wouldn't keep anything back from you. And Lord, I know, I know with certainty there are those in this room that we have these closets that are locked. And we're going, not there, Lord. Not that. I don't want you to touch that. And Lord, I pray from your love that you would touch that. That you would unlock that place. That you would enter that closet and you would deal with whatever's in there so that they can give themselves more and more over to you knowing that your lordship is sweet, it is beautiful, it is the greatest thing that there is. And so, Lord, we ask that you work in our hearts, that you put your finger on those places that we have not given up to you, and you don't let go until we do. Knowing that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that we don't have to do it in our own power, but we do it as we submit more and more to you. Make us a people that are hungry for you to be Lord of all that you may make us more into the image of your Son, but also that we may be used to be salt and light in this world. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are gentle and that you are lowly and that you are patient with us. Thank you that we have a high priest who understands us and we rest in that knowledge this morning. In Jesus' name.